So we're continuing to go through our guns project and talk to one reporter a day about their work. And joining us now is Haley Mungia, who contributed to this. Haley, welcome back to What's the Point? Thanks. Happy to be here. So um, you reported on domestic violence incidents that involve a gun. Mm -hmm. Uh, But put that in context of this larger question of gun deaths. We know the biggest group is suicides and then homicides. Mm -hmm. Homicide gun deaths, domestic violence makes up about 11% of those, um, which, you know, whenever you're looking at suicide and um, young men categories, it's it's not a lot compared to that, but it's by far the highest number when, when we're talking about women. And so um, over 80% of these domestic violence homicides are women. Right. So the, so the, the kind of two, two stats that I think really contextualize this story you're telling are that, that this is by far the, the, the way that women die from from guns, mm-hmm. but also that domestic violence gun deaths are bigger than terrorism or mass shootings right. and these things that get much more attention. Mm-hmm. So what did you look into? So I basically called a bunch of researchers and experts and tried to kind of figure out if there was um, you know, a policy or something that we know kind of helps address this. And it's pretty unanimous. Everyone I talked to said what's interesting is that there's a federal ban on um, people who've been convicted of domestic violence, whether it's felony or misdemeanor, um, people who have uh, restraining orders filed against them, they're not allowed to even possess guns, but um, no one enforces that. And so everyone I spoke to said that this is one thing that we know that if a domestic abuser has a gun, they're five times likelier to, um, to kill their intimate partner. But there are so few places that are actually enforcing this. And so, um, you know, there are a few places that are doing this where it's been effective. So the one thing that we know we can do is just enforce these laws that are already in place. So I want to talk about the place that you looked at in a sec. But what you're saying is basically that if the goal is to get guns out of people who have committed domestic abuse before, Mm -hmm. because that's such a kind of strong indicator that you'll do it again, it means that uh, often... It's like not their first crime mm-hmm. when someone gets killed in a domestic abuser case. It's part It's part of a pattern of violence. Right. Um, yeah. So anywhere between 67 and 80 percent of um, women who were killed with a gun by their intimate partner have uh, a documented history of domestic abuse. So it's a pretty, pretty significant indicator. So as you said, there's a there's a paper trail. We kind of yeah. know who who mm-hmm. cre- who is both a victim and a perpetrator in these scenarios, and we know that guns are a big part of the problem. But we're not getting guns out of the hands of these people, except for in some places, right? Right. So who is doing it in a way that we can look to for uh, a po- as a possible model? So I focused on Portland, Oregon, where uh, basically, I mean. A lot of the city leaders there have been really dedicated to domestic violence. And so, um, but it wasn't until 2014 that um, the district attorney's office, the circuit courts, and um, the police bureau all came to an agreement about how they would actually divvy up the work to, to make sure that um, they were checking in on people who were either convicted of domestic violence or who were served restraining orders um, related to domestic violence. And then from there, anytime a restraining order is served, you know, the circuit courts will let the DA's office know, who will let the police know, and then they'll kind of follow up, contact everyone who is under a restraining order to make sure that they they surrender their guns or um, they have to sign an affidavit claiming that they don't have guns, if that's the case. So 
in some cases, they're just asking people, do you have a gun? There isn't a database that they can cross-check and say this person committed domestic violence. Are they a gun owner? There is not in Oregon, um, mostly because um, there's so many different ways you can get a gun. Mm -hmm. You know, you can buy a gun privately, and so there doesn't there isn't necessarily a central database that has all this different information. So they have to basically contact the person who filed the restraining order to see if they believe that they have a gun. Um, and then from there, they will kind of investigate all the different leads to see if there's any evidence that the person has a gun. But at the end of the day, it's still like the person has to either like be honest and give up their guns or sign an affidavit saying that they don't, in which case in any future crimes, they're, they're kind of liable for. Mm-hmm. I guess we've started by sort of pointing out some of the pitfalls right. of this, but it is, it is to some extent uh, been effective, right? So talk yeah. about its efficacy and, and how it does and why all the experts you talked to said, go look at Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Backing up. Um, so there has been research done that um, on programs like this, uh, specifically, there was one study that was done in California um, where there was a, a program that was federally funded that... Um, researchers helped the sheriff's departments in two counties kind of uh, facilitate a program. It's basically just like um, what they're doing in Portland. And they found that the people who gave up their guns were less likely to be arrested for any crime in the future. And um, it was a small study. There hasn't been a, a whole lot of research done, but the research that does exist kind of shows that it that it is effective. And in Portland specifically, They've been doing this um, full-time since June 2015, so a little over a year now, and um, they've retrieved around, I think it's around 100 guns from domestic abusers. So. It's a pretty small sample size. Yeah. <laughs> so do you even trust the data in a story like this, or is this really just about uh, a sort of hint at a model that may work? This is really just a hint at a model that may work. Um, we definitely don't have a big enough sample size in any kind of um, research to say this, we know this works, but out of all of the different types of crimes committed with guns, this is one area where we have the laws already in place and it's, mm-hmm. um, but we're not enforcing them. And so, right. And that, and that's kind of what makes your piece, your slice of this reporting different from almost every other conversation we've been having, because in so many of the others, there's, you know, legit disagreement mm-hmm. um, from many of the sides of the gun debate about the efficacy of a program or even kind of how to go how to start uh, to reduce deaths in a particular category and this one it feels like we know what the problem is we know at least one sort of solution mm-hmm. um, so it's just a matter of implementing it so right. where is what's the hold up so the hold up is that it requires a lot of resources especially in um, you know bigger cities where there are there's a lot of crimes going on. I interviewed the main judge of their of their family court system in Portland, and she said that one of the big concerns before they did this was that they didn't have the docket space to um, to bring all these people to trial. And so that was when the um, idea that they would just sign an affidavit came into play. You know, it, it involves a lot of different moving parts. And so in big cities, they don't have the docket space to be prosecuting all these people. They don't have the the dedicated police resources to to kind of be following up on every single person who may or may not have a gun who's committed domestic abuse. And so in Portland, they got the funds to um, hire a full-time sergeant and two full-time officers where this is all they do. They just call people who are convicted of domestic abuse, have um, domestic violence training orders filed against them, make sure that they know that they have to give up their guns and that they do so. That's all they do. And so it, it takes a lot of time and resources to 
to prioritize this. You know, everyone agrees that this is something that we should enforce, but it's not really going to happen unless you unless a, a city is committed to, to dedicating all of that time and effort to it. Right. And but again, as we mentioned, this is a category of death that's bigger than a lot of the things that get more attention, right. both mm-hmm. from media and just in general as, as a priority. And so part of the work that you're doing is hopefully trying to add some clarity to what mm-hmm. our priority list right. looks like. Um, so to wrap up, are there other cities that are that are looking at this? Are they taking like a wait and see approach? Are academics going to just study what's happening in Portland and then see if it can be implemented in other cities? Like what's the future here? So the future here is that um, what's interesting is that in Portland, it's it's expanding they just expanded it to the whole county, and so they got the sheriff's department involved. There's um, a few of the different neighboring counties are doing it, and so they're kind of there. They're seeing it how it works in different, like in urban areas and in rural areas. And um, you know, the hope is that they can serve as a model for other cities, but um, it's it's unclear if that's happening at the moment. All right. Well, we encourage people to go read your piece, and uh, thanks for joining us, Haley. Thank you. Oh, 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 oh,